Right. Last time, we talked about the origins of appeasement as being retaliation. And we used uh, the story of Cain and Abel as kind of the starting point. Um, that the blood cries out from the ground for apparently revenge. The text doesn't say it, but we assume it. The book of Hebrews assumes it by stating that the, the blood of Jesus speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. So if Jesus' blood speaks graciously, then Abel's blood must speak out for revenge. That, that cry for revenge and retaliation does not come from God. It comes from humans. It comes from humanity. I want to reinforce that by re-looking at these texts. Uh, so if you turn to Genesis 3. In the aftermath of the fall, God addresses the snake, the man, and the woman in that order. And in verse 14, I'm wondering if someone can read, and, and please let your voice carry uh, if you do. Someone read uh, this passage. 14? 14, yeah. Okay. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Okay. Note that he crawls on his belly and he eats dust. Remember that the voice of, of Abel's blood cries out from the ground. And I said last week that I was pretty sure that the Hebrew word was Adama and that that word is related to Adam. Right? Adam is an earthling. Adama is, is earth. It can also mean soil. So dust is part of that, as we will see. Now go down to verse 19. Jonathan, would you read for us verse 19? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And that word dust apparently means dirt also. You are dirt. So you are of the Adma. And to dirt you will return, or to dust you will return. Now, if the serpent eats dust, and we are dust, what does that mean? Or tasty. Eats us. <laughs> the serpent eats us. There's, there's overtones. You know, we, we can read it on a literal level and, and think of snakes eating dust. They really don't eat dust. <laughs> they crawl in the dust, and maybe they do in, in just of dust in the process of crawling in the dust. But, but they don't eat dust for food. That eating dust has a bigger me- meaning, and it means that the serpent will eat the dead. He will eat human beings who are dust. Uh-huh. Hmm. That means that Abel's blood that cries out from the ground cries out from the dust you are and to dust you shall return. It cries out from humanity for revenge. And that's why God has to put 
kind of a sanction on Cain. He has to put a guard on him, a mark that will keep people from killing him and taking revenge. Which to me is the clarifying point about whether or not God wants retaliation. In the, in, in, let me uh, express this differently uh, since there are some newcomers. I have developed a hermeneutic for the Old Testament that is built on what Jesus, how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament where he said, in the beginning it was not so. Moses gave, allowed you to divorce for the stiffness of your neck and the hardness of your hearts. Um, I have concluded that there are two voices in the Old Testament, the minor voice of God's preferred will and the major voice of his will adapted to the will of the people. And I'm going to be especially using this model or this hermeneutic when looking at atonement. So it's crucial in the beginning when you first hear God talking about the problem of blood and death and all of that that is so important to atonement that you understand that the, pri- the, the initial reaction of God is not to retaliate but to protect the first murderer against retaliation. That's the preferred voice. Now... If we go to a verse that we should have dealt with last week that I'm going to deal with now. And that is in uh, Genesis 9. This is after the flood. Remember that last week we talked about how God... We talked about how Noah comes off the ark with his animals and he starts whacking them dead. One after the other. All the clean animals, like a sample from each one. And he's seeking, and it appears from the text, he's seeking to appease God. He wants flood insurance. And, <laughs> and this is the way to get it. And you remember God's response is not, this is great, I'm appeased now, I've smelled the soothing savor, the soothing odor, and I'm appeased, but rather, I won't curse the earth again, I won't, I won't, destroy humanity again because from the youth their hearts are only evil. So you're saying that's more of the major voice talking at this point? Actually, this is the minor voice. His reason isn't because he's appeased that he won't destroy humanity. His reason is they're evil from the youth. Look at all this killing going on to appease me. They're using violence to try to appease me. They think I'm a violent deity. Their thought, they just can't get it. And, and so there's no point in, in destroying all humanity and constantly starting over. I have to do something different. Well, let's look at uh, Genesis 9 now. See where God goes with this. And we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. And... Caitlin's mom, I can't remember your name. Kathy. Kathy, uh, would you please read verses 5 and 6 for me? Sure, I just had to guess. Sorry. 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 And surely your blood of your life will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Okay, 
the actual Hebrew word for require or demand is to seek. I will seek your blood. Meaning, what? well, let's ask the question, what does this mean? Does this mean God is going to take their lives? Is God requiring us to do it? Or is God predicting what is going to take place? Predicting, yeah, predicting blood feuds, perhaps? <coughs> that does seem a little unlikely, given that they probably had plenty of blood feuds before the flood. So it does suggest that this is the, now the major voice coming in and saying, uh, because human beings are so bent on, on destruction and violence, I'm going to instate the first law against murder, and I'm going to require you to deal with murderers by a capital means. In other words, uh, the death penalty. This is, this is not his ideal will as he preserved the life of Cain. This is now his adapted will to the exigency of the problem he has with human violence. He has to put a check on it somewhere. Um, I do think that it's also predictive because we know that blood feuds did, were very common in ancient times. That was, we call it self-help. Uh, instead of having a system of law enforcement like we have today in our society, uh, if someone killed your brother, you would, someone in your family uh, would take on the blood redeemer role and find the killer and kill them or kill their brother. Like an honor killing? Yes. Uh, in the Bible, it's called blood redeemer, or redeemer of blood. I want to, but I want to know to, you to notice one thing that is minor voice about this text. In the Ten Commandments, most scholars think that the word you, you shall not kill is really you shall not murder. And therefore, it's restricted to murder and doesn't mean you can't kill in the armed forces, doesn't mean you can't go and do conquest, it doesn't mean you can't do the death penalty, it doesn't mean etc. If so, then that text to me is definitely the adaptive voice. And what you have in this text is not murder. God is very explicit here and very broad-based. He says, whoever sheds human blood. That's across the board. You shed human blood in war. You shed human blood by capital punishment. You shed human blood in murder. You shed human blood in manslaughter. All human blood is the same to God in this verse. And by human, his blood will be shed. Why? Because in the divine image, God made human beings. What does that imply? What does shedding blood have to do with the divine image? Why, why is that a reason for if humans shed blood, by humans their blood will be shed? It is as if maybe you're shedding God's blood. You're going, certainly going against the creator, against the one who gave life. And once you destroy that image of God, in once you destroy the image of God in yourself enough that you can kill another person, then that, that, that also destroys the image of God in all the victims who are affected by that killing. Mm-hmm. And what I think this text really is implying in its broadest sense is that 
In order for someone to kill someone else, they must first themselves be killed, be, have the image of God destroyed in them. And that very act, of course, of killing destroys the image of God in society. Uh, and that is going to lead to revenge killing. So, so I think it's both and. God is and speaking the major voice that there has to be a, a, a corrective to all the killing. And his predicting how that corrective is going to take place. And he doesn't make a distinction here at this point between innocent and guilty. Blood is blood. Yeah. It's all, it's all bad. Uh, and I, I think that's very significant this early. Now, last week, uh, we also dealt with the binding of Isaac. And Alex and Caitlin had this in honors class, but I'll give it to them again. And, and Brian, you had this in... In books of Moses, oh, yeah. um, not that one. But, yeah, I was scripture one. Oh, you were scripture one. You had it then too, but um, and I had do have one left. So there. Uh, we won't go over this again today. Uh, we are going to build on this now, and we're going to look at Exodus, the book of Exodus, and we're going to begin looking at sacrifice. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 10 first. Uh, chapter 10, Exodus 10, and um, on the handout it's verse 9. Actually, we probably should begin, let's start with verse 7. And you want to read, Christina? Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long shall, his, how long shall this fellow be a snare to us? Let the people go, so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go worship the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we have the Lord's festival to celebrate. Okay. So this is, this is actually... Uh, a statement about a festival and that festival is going to be the Passover I believe there's actually an earlier uh, statement where where Moses says we have to go and sacrifice to the Lord now one thing you need to know is in Egypt, Egypt sacrifices are not something you do uh, animals have more of a sacral function in Egypt and so all this blood shed is not savory to the Egyptians, and they don't value that. This, uh, I need to point out to you, is unique to Israel, with the exception of one society, and that's the Hittite culture. The, the manipulation of blood, sprinkling it, pouring it, dashing it, uh, and so on, is unique to Israel, particularly when it involves sacred things. Uh, and so we're going to be probing that. What, what is the function of blood? How does it operate? And, and our ritual texts aren't going to explain things very well. So, so we may be at a loss to explain it, uh, actually, until we get to the New Testament. But we're going to have to ride with that question. I may preempt it. I may bring a handout I have on the blood. 
where I have tried to work it out. But um, in some ways, I like it more of an inductive approach. <laughs> uh, and let us kind of wade through the text until we start coming to some shape and form and substance. So here we have this festival. Let's turn to now to Exodus 12. I tried to discuss this with my Books of Moses class yesterday, and everybody was falling asleep on me. <laughs> what time was it? It was at 1 o'clock class. Oh, oh. On a Friday? On a Friday, yeah. <laughs> After lunch, right. And I finally, at a, a quarter of, I said, you know, I think you guys really need a nap. I'm going to let you go early. <laughs> and we let go. <laughs> tired of blinking eyes. <laughs> okay, first Passover. Uh, why don't we start reading this, Brian? Why don't you read the first five verses, and then uh, we'll just go around. Okay, great. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay. Uh, you want to read the next five verses? Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. Okay. Um, so, so far you, you have this lamb and you take, you slaughter it, you take some of the blood, you smear it on the two doorposts and the beam over the door of the house and they then eat the meat, they roast it in fire, they eat the meat and don't let any of it remain in mourning. If there is, they burn it. Okay. Any, anything that strikes you about that or any question that it elicits? This is what we call a communal meal. But they are so supposed to do this in their own households, although if their household is small, they're allowed to join with another household and share a single lamb between them. What is the significance of it being roasted rather than boiled? boiled? I've been pondering that myself, and I'm not sure I have an answer for that. I do know that boiled meat is not as tasty as, uh, <laughs> as roasted. Does it have anything to do with boiled in mother's milk or something like that? Perhaps it it might be. It could it could to be to avoid that. But keep in mind that the traditional offering <coughs> that Abraham offers uh, and the first offering that's dealt with in Leviticus is the burnt offering, where you burn it by fire and presumably initially it's roasted. 
but then ultimately burned up. Uh, so I, I think it might have something to do with boiling. Um, you're adding water to the mix, and, and water is implemental in, in cleansing. Um, it's not involved in killing. So, so there's some of that going on. Okay, would you please read verses 11 to... Why don't you read verses 11 13? This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and I will. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Okay. Uh, any questions or comments about this? Why does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> why, do, why does the blood matter? Yeah, yeah, why... How does this fit into the atonement? Major, minor, minor yeah. voice. It, it really sounds very substitutional. Mm-hmm. You have the lamb substituting for the firstborn. Uh, you have, the blood of the lamb covers the firstborn so that uh, when... When the destroying angel goes over, passes over, that, that verb pass over, passes over is the root verb of Pesach, which is uh, the Passover. What is the, how would you break that down in terms of meaning? What does it mean? The lintel is very important to the house too, right? Mm-hmm. I, just like with Jericho and the building, they said like your firstborn will die if you rebuild Jericho, right? Mm-hmm. And they he had to be he buried the son at the cornerstone or at the gate, right? So I don't know what the connect why it's important, but well, putting it in the ancient Near Eastern context, archaeologists have dug up Canaanite homes in Palestine. And have found this is this is in the probably the middle bronze uh, late bronze period. They have found sometimes that infants' bones were buried in the doorpost in the in the bottom where they put the doorposts on, and that was to protect the home. When you're dealing with a culture that practices child sacrifice, that by this time the Egyptians did not. But most of the people coming out of Egypt are Semitic. They belong to a culture that does do child sacrifice. Um, the Phoenicians are not the first to do, child, to do human sacrifice. You have human sacrifice in almost all periods, periodically going back to uh, Sumer. But the Phoenicians seem to popularize child sacrifice, not just human sacrifice, but child sacrifice. And just to give you an insight into how this was practiced, whenever there was like a calamity, um, the, the statement you made, Caitlin, about building Jericho on the, de- on the bodies of his firstborn, um, that's a, probably a reference to child sacrifice. And uh, so they, they used a child sacrifice to, 
to protect the home because um, if you believe that space belonged to the gods, land belonged ultimately to the gods, and you were daring to build on the gods' property, uh, that's po- one possible way of looking at this. It's not necessarily the way because we don't have a lot of texts that explain what was really going on in ancient Near Eastern mentality. Uh, but we do know that the the Phoenicians practiced it, in, and especially in Carthage, Africa, uh, they uncovered huge urns with the, the, the ashes of infants in them. There's been debate about whether those were infants or fetuses or just what this was, but the quantity of them and how how full they were and how large they were would indicate infants. I don't think fetuses would make enough ash. I don't think they would have enough fetuses to make enough ash to cover uh, those urns. But they have found documentation. They have found letters uh, where families in Carthage were adopting their children out to families in as far as 22 miles away, uh, changing their identities, changing their names to avoid having the priests come into their homes and snatching the babies and taking them for the, for the, to burn them alive uh, before either as a mulk or to mulk. We're not sure whether, I'm not sure, uh, scholars debate this, and some scholars say, no, it is Moloch, it's a deity, and other scholars say, no, it's a technical term for child sacrifice. I haven't solved that debate in my own mind. <laughs> but it's one or the other. We know it means child sacrifice. The other, th- the other piece of evidence that I have is that sailors going on the Mediterranean because of the danger of storms or war, uh, if things got too tense and they were threatened with extinction, that is, the boat was going to go down, uh, sometimes the, the captain of the ship would impale himself as a human sacrifice. And this was done not just by Phoenicians, but by Greeks, Greek sailors as well. But often the sailors would make vows to their deity, if you get us back to land, we will offer our firstborn. And there would actually be shrines along the coastline of the Mediterranean where they could do that, fulfill their vows. Uh, so this is the widespread practice and if you cast this this Passover service against that background God is giving Israel a different way of handling it than child sacrifice but still in a way that they could understand in a way they could understand relate to and adapt to and and if we as Christians read this story typologically the Lamb, of course, represents Jesus in his innocence, his, his sinlessness. It represents the fact that his death, in a sense, covers us from extinction so that we don't have to die. That's a very, the very loose concept. Uh, how we break that down and how we interpret that, of course, we have to bring other scripture to it. This scripture alone isn't going to tell us everything we need to know about that. Um, and then that's why some of our questions like why the blood and, and all of that some of our questions will have to wait until we come to Jesus actually and his own explanations about blood so I'm sorry that I can't give you a nice broad complete full answer but uh, we will have to to wait until we come to a fuller answer 
Any, any other questions that you have or anything that strikes you about this um, as, as you ponder the I Passover? I have a question. Um, it, the way they're describing the, the, how you should eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on your feet, and your, as if you're ready to dart or battle, and I'm just curious about that. Well, they're about to leave Egypt. That, so this whole, the first Passover is celebrated as at the very brink of their departure. Their freedom is right up, up ahead. And, and the death of the firstborn is what sets them free. Yeah. It also makes me think that as a Christian, that is how we are to live our life. Be ready to mm-hmm. go have our cloak, have our dagger, have everything mm-hmm. ready to go. Mm-hmm. Jesus, accepting Jesus' sacrifice mm-hmm. as the firstborn and the Son of God mm-hmm. also yeah. gives the possibility. Yeah. Yes. I mean, something that struck me a while back was actually the total consumption of the sacrifice, if not by mouths, but by fire. Mm-hmm. So even Don't the leave anything left over. Uh, what do you think the significance of that is? Like, every, it is destroyed in its totality. Sacred, it's sacred. Okay. It's, it's holy, and holy things you don't keep okay. because then they desecrate. The, the worms start coming in, and, and then things start happening, and, and the bacteria and all of that. So you, it loses its sacral. Yeah. It, it kind of profanes it. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is holy, and and you consume it entirely. Okay, um, let's go to um, oh, let's go to verses twenty-one and following. Um, Glow, you want to read? Uh, let's see. Why don't you read through verse twenty-three? Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lentil and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until this morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not suffer the destroyer, the, the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. Okay, you want to read, uh, saying, you want to read verses 24 to 28. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass that when ye become, be come to the land which the Lord will give you, uh, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the house, houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as Lord, the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. Okay, one thing you need to know about homes, that the doorway 
was liminal space. Let, let me explain liminal space. Liminal space is space that is neither here nor there. It is therefore the potential, it has the potential of harm. Because someone could come, an, an evil spirit, for example, to, to use a pagan concept, uh, an evil spirit could come and do harm in that liminal space. You always need protection, special protection of liminal space. The four door, the four post holes of the house are liminal space, uh, which is why they would use their children as as protection. So. This is this is one aspect. The other aspect is the concept that the door doorway is kind of the place any gate, city gate, house gate was the way the place of judgment. In the Levite and the concubine story, the concubine, after her being gang raped, staggers her way to the house and she falls before she reaches it. She reaches out her hands and touches the threshold. Now, this is an imploring gesture, but it's a plea for justice. And, and that threshold is, is where she hopes to have justice. So... Having the the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts is saying you're covered. You are you will not die when the firstborn are put to death or or simply die. I I believe all God had to do was simply not put, not keep them alive. Um, but He spared the Israelites and. Again, we have to put this in the setting of the people in that time. And, and the belief in human sacrifice, in, in, in something having to, to do something for me that I could not protect myself. And the belief uh, that Israel had about blood. So the, the story continues that Israel, uh, they do this, they celebrate the Passover, and apparently anybody throughout Egypt could do the same thing. So this was, this was not something that was exclusively Israel, though it's unlikely that most Egyptians wanted to do it because of their view of sacrifices. And, and so when, when the, the terrible cry rings out as, as the firstborn are dying, uh, they urge the Israelites, get out of here, just go. And they leave in the middle of the night. Any any que- other further questions before we move on? Observations? I want to move briefly then to chapter 13, and verse, starting with verse 11. And since it's my turn to read, I'm going to read this entire passage because our time is fast going. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as promised to you and your ancestors, you shall set aside for the Lord whatever comes out of the womb first. All of the first males born to your animal belong to the Lord, but every first male donkey you shall ransom with a sheep. 
If you don't ransom it, you must break its neck. You should ransom every oldest male among your children. When in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You should answer, the Lord brought us with a great power out of Egypt, out of the place we were slaves. When Pharaoh refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the oldest offspring in the land of Egypt, from the oldest sons to the oldest male animals. That is why I offer to the Lord as a sacrifice every male that comes first out of the womb, but I ransom my oldest sons. It will be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with great power. There are some scholars, including one Jewish scholar named John Levinson, who take this to mean that God's original plan was child sacrifice. And that's because of how they read this passage. They they pick it apart and put one part of it earlier uh, and then the other part later. Uh, So that earlier passage says that you're supposed to just dedicate your firstborn to the Lord. And the later passage is you're to ransom your firstborn. I don't think the passage read as a whole indicates that at all. It's very clear that they're to ransom the firstborn. Why do you think God would institute a law like this? In the way, this is obviously in the wake of, of the whole Passover night, the killing of the firstborn of Egypt, or the dying of the firstborn of Egypt. What is this passage? Why is God concerned about ransoming the firstborn? Sacrificing the firstborn animals, ransoming the firstborn. Because it protects the firstborn child so that they don't feel like they have to sacrifice him to God. Yeah, this is, by the way, let's just back up a little bit and talk about what happens when, when the firstborn die of Egypt, in, in Egypt. This is pretty dramatic and traumatic beyond just the fact that you're losing your firstborn. It's traumatic to all society because this is the second millennium and the house of the father. And in the house of the father, the firstborn is the father, the future father of every household. And to, slay, to have the firstborn die is about the greatest calamity to the house of the father structure in all of society. It just undoes the very, the very structure and, and, and stability of society. To keep Israel from in, perpetu- in perpetuity sacrificing their firstborn children to, because they have such an awesome memory of this terrible night in which the firstborn died. To keep them from sacrificing their children to, pre- you know, to protect themselves and to protect their other children, uh, God says ransom them. And yes, you can go ahead and sacrifice all the firstborn of your animals. Uh, so I see this as major voice and as God instituting this because of what they would have done if he hadn't. Okay, we might have time for Exodus 20, 22 to 25. Let's quickly turn there. This is the instruction for building the altar. 
And we're going to read verses 20, 22 to 20, uh, 25. Would you like to read for us? Oh, sure. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. What do you do with that? You made me an altar of soil. But if you're going to make an altar of, of stone, don't chisel it. Because you'll profane it. They they did all the chiseling outside away from and then when they actually built it. But why not an altar of gold or silver? Is that what the heathens did? Most most um, Canaanite altars were stone. Maybe it's too similar to an idol. Chiseling that could be. Would they worship the altar becomes the the thing they they worship? worship. And exactly, I think it is. Make it very humble. Now I want to I want to give you a little peek of where we're headed with this whole thing, the Passover and the altar, uh, because we want to keep this in mind in the days ahead as we start moving in towards the Leviticus. This story of the Passover is the first festival. And it is also the first kind of sacrifice that God institutes. A communal meal with God. Um, the, the family, no priest in between you and God, just the family daubing the blood on the doorposts, saying we're going to apply the blood to ourselves. And whatever that means. Uh, so I see this as both major and minor voice at work. It is major because there's a lot of adaptation to the people where they are in, in light of the problem of child sacrifice. It is minor um, in that it's simple, uncomplicated, and there's no mediator. When you eat that animal, you understand there's some kind of communion you're having with God as well. So this is like the first communion service, even in a sense. So you want to keep this in mind as as we move through, because things are in Leviticus, things are going to get very complex, and it's going to, we're going to be saying why all of these offerings. Was this God's preferred will, or is this His will adapting to the will of the people? Because from now until Leviticus, there's nothing mentioned other than instructions about building the altar both in here uh, and towards the end of Exodus 
There's nothing about sacrifices. And there's a lot of things that happen between God and Israel between that and Leviticus. So we're, we're going to try to keep this in story narrative form uh, because I feel that that is the most it's important way to read the Bible rather than chopping it up in pieces. Anyone like to have the last word? Can raise a question, comment, doesn't mean we'll answer it today. Well, it's interesting about child sacrifice because pagan worship and coming from India, even as a religious child, there would be news reports of children being sacrificed. They're going to make a building or build a wall. They would hear of child disappearance and people were very careful. So Satan uses this over and over again through the culture, through all the pagan religions to similar, you know, it kind of takes our eyes away from God uh-huh. because and, and, it's a surprising yeah. And see... You can see why God would have to have something like a Passover to keep them from doing that. Oh, if God's going to strike the Egyptian for and all the other plagues, they didn't have to do anything, right? But here's the scenario. God says, okay, you won't let Israel go. Your firstborn son are going to die. And Israel goes, how are we going to know that our firstborn sons aren't going to die? Maybe we better sacrifice one of our younger sons so that you, you can see how this could go. So God gives them the Passover to say, no, you don't need to do that. Here's how you protect yourself. Um, I'll take care of it. It's my blood that's going to do it, not your blood. And I, I want to emphasize that that combined with the ransom of the firstborn really means that God is consistently saying this is the, the ultimate sacrifice is not a father killing his son. That's, that's what we understood last week from the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, uh, the words, do not lay a hand, Father, do not lay a hand on your son, do not do anything to him, is, is really the keynote of all sacrifice. A father is not going to kill his son. Because I have students today And I get this on test. It's a rare student. It's not every student. But occasionally I have a student who tells me that at some point, or with the the story of of Abraham and Isaac, this happened on this last test, uh, God no longer wants, what the story of Abraham and Isaac tells me is that God no longer wants a, a, a child sacrifice implying he did before but now he he stopped wanting it <laughs> and and there's becoming an increasing blurring of understanding i'm finding in my students and their recognition that jesus sacrifice is not a human sacrifice or a divine a sacrifice where god kills his son there's there's becoming increasing blurring of that but I, I, so I want to make this very clear that so far the evidence definitely suggests that the father will not kill his son if we take this typologically and view it as illustrating the death of Jesus. Thank you for that comment because it, it helped me to tie that together. Okay, let's bow our heads.
Father, we want to thank you so much that you are consistent, that you never wanted fathers killing their sons, and that you did not kill your son, but you gave him up, and sin took his life. We took his life. We ask that we will, as we continue working through the Bible, this picture of you and what it means may become clearer and clearer to our understanding. May we see you truly as never before. In Jesus' name, amen.